is the J Cut and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. This is Andreas here. I am the creator and one of the head writers of Films Fatale. And we are busting at the seams to get through our Academy Awards nonsense for the next month or so. You're going to see some uh, rankings of nominations. You're going to hear some good stuff on this podcast uh, relating to the Oscars. A lot of stuff is going to go down. Uh, nonetheless, I love international and art house cinema for the most part, but also dabble in a bit of everything else. So who else do I have with me? We have Rachel. I write for Films Fatale as well, and I specialize in international cinema, classic films, and lost movies. And I'm also very deep into Oscar season. James here, content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred Say podcast. I'm also a writer of Films Fatale, and my interests include 70s cinema and no-budget cinema. And... This week's episode is my pick. So I thought it might be fun to talk about industry families because it's always really interesting when you have a family, you know, whether, whether it's like, you know, only extends to one or two generations, but, you know, you have people like the Coppolas, the Arquettes, the Baldwins, the Waynes family. So I thought it might be fun to kind of explore, you know, the careers of people who are related. So the first half is going to be a project by someone that might be part of like a first generation or maybe the, the matriarch or patriarch of a family. And then the second half, we will deal with a project by their progeny. Cool. Well, I feel like this will be interesting because there are so many iconic film or entertainment industry related families. Including some we may not even know about because it's not very well publicized. That's also true. And like back in the earliest days of cinema, which let's be honest, if we're dealing with families of this sort, you know, for instance, if you're looking at like a Drew Barrymore, you're going all the way back to the silent era and mostly sticking around the golden age back in the 30s and 40s with, you know, Lionel Barrymore and such. So, yeah, I feel like this is going to be a very expansive episode, and I am excited. So, who wants to kick this thing off with their first head of household, let's call them? I will. Alrighty. Sure. So, I am going with the Reitman family, and um, mm. they are both Canadian, the people I'm discussing in this episode, uh, and they are both director, writer, producers, and that is Ivan Reitman, the father, and Jason Reitman, the son. So today we're going to talk about Ivan. He was famous for such movies as Stripes and um, Ghostbusters and just basically any comedy you really enjoyed in the 80s and 90s. Good chance it was some way involved with him. He's definitely a legend and particularly a Canadian legend. Yeah, and uh, for those of you who love the Tiff Bell Lightbox, if you're local listeners, yeah, he's a big reason why that exists, the Ivan Reitman uh, name attached to the Tiff Bell Lightbox. So uh, many reasons to thank this man. Many, many reasons. Exactly. And so we all know movies of his like Ghostbusters and Kindergarten Cop and Animal House, things like that. But I want to talk about Dave, because that is one of my favorite sort of small-time comedies it's a political satire starring Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. And it's about a guy who is an exact double of the president of the United States. So Kevin Klein plays both the ordinary guy and the president of the United States. Frank Langella is the villain because, of course, and it's awesome. And everything's going well. And Kevin Klein has a nice side gig imitating the president at various events until the real president has a stroke. He's out of commission. There's a whole bunch of scandals about to break. And so they decide it's best to put in a decoy just to keep the American public in the dark until the president hopefully returns to health. So Kevin Klein is brought in 
And then he starts to get a little bit romantic with the actual first lady, Sigourney Weaver, and things go from there. It's a super funny little comedy. I think it's kind of underrated and overlooked, and it's just a really enjoyable evening with lots of good uh, snipes at the political system. There are also a lot of cameos, which I think probably made more sense to 90s audiences of real media personalities and politicians. I have never heard of this film. I'm looking what? it up right now. It's, Noah. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of thing where if it's on TV, you're going to be watching it for the rest of the afternoon. You're not changing the channel. It's interesting, though, because the person who wrote the screenplay here, um, Gary Ross, has done a few things that I wouldn't necessarily consider works of genius, but they somehow like really connected with me. So like I... I really like Buzz and Phil as like a nostalgia watch or like just for its sentimentality. I know it's like kind of guilt trippy, but I still really resonate with it. Ocean's 8, I feel like was a lot of fun. It wasn't really um, monumental outside of its casting, but I feel like it was the most fun of like the Ocean's films. Not the best, but fun. I'm kind of curious about this, to be honest, considering that he wrote this um, and with uh, Reitman directing. I mean, who knows what we have in store. That's a great comedy team, and I've got to say Kevin Klein's performance is really worth checking out because he has to play this cold, uh, unemotional jerk who's the president, and then he has to play this fun-loving regular dude who happens to look like the president, and it's it's pretty hard to switch on and off, but he does it seamlessly. And that's another thing. I feel like Kevin Klein, similarly to like perhaps this film or uh, Ivan Reitman in general, is somewhat of a product of the past where I feel like he's always been talented but you just don't really hear his name being brought up anymore. And whereas like back in like the eighties and stuff, Kevin Klein was like, is he go-to guy for like pretty much anything? Like he was so versatile. So, um, you know, considering this is 93, I feel like it's prime Klein. So I'm fine with that. Yeah. They even originally considered Schwarzenegger for the role and it just it would not have worked in the same way. Although it would have been funny considering Schwarzenegger's second career. Oh, good. Well, and unfortunately, uh, well, I mean, the, the premise of Dave didn't happen because, well, it's a little specific, but the political side of it, yes, uh, Schwarzenegger ended up becoming uh, the governor, which uh, none of us will ever forget. And now he is Zeus, apparently, so that, you know, uh, we, we, we need to dwell on that nonetheless. So who wants to talk about their next patriarch? Or matriarch? I, uh, well, since you brought up patriarch first, I think I shall. I'm not going to reveal who my descendant is until the second half, because I feel like it kind of makes for like a nice uh, one-two punch, kind of like a like a bookend of things. But um, uh, general question here, who is often considered the first celebrity if, of entertainment of, of any form? Like worldwide, people could recognize this person. I don't know. Sarah Bernhardt? Uh, well, I think the, the the answer that's given the most is Charlie Chaplin. And that is who I'm going with. So Charlie Chaplin. And it, it sounds it sounds a little stupid to say on a podcast like this, but I feel like it's one of those things where to the mass movie-going audience of today who might not be watching older stuff or that might just be familiar with Charlie Chaplin as, like, a funny guy, he's uh, legitimately one of the greatest filmmakers of all time and a very, very 
big reason why films resonate the, the ways that they do today. So like, for instance, City Lights, I feel like is very Pixar-esque. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Pixar team were very influenced by you know, the works of Chaplin, like, you know, the circus or um, Gold Rush, that sort of stuff, but especially City Lights. But I'm going to focus on a film of his, which actually has grown in popularity, especially in the internet age. And uh, a big reason why is because of its climactic monologue. And that's a great dictator. So if you want to see like a, an, an expose of some of his finest filmmaking, first off, this film is that. Secondly, what I like the most and the reason why I'm kind of using this film, it's going to pair up nicely with the second half, what I've got coming up later, but you're just going to have to wait. I feel like he wasn't just an artist. He was also willing to put himself on the line. He was willing to, to be like, hey, I'm going to mock one of the most powerful people in the world if you don't know the premise of The Great Dictator. Actually, it's kind of similar to Dave, except instead of a president, it's Hitler. So Chaplin himself uh, plays multiple people who look alike. And, you know, the, the obvious meta joke here is that Chaplin and Hitler sh share the same mustache. So there were those comparisons back in the 30s and 40s. And the same thing happens where this monstrous dictator uh, is basically out of commission and this person affected by, you know, World War II or like, you know, what was going to be World War II and like the, the struggling economically, that sort of stuff, granted this position to take this person's place. And they don't explicitly say it's Hitler, but it's Hitler. And he could address the world with this amount of power. He didn't have to do anything to get here you know, no working his way up the ranks, literally just a clean swap. And what does that look like? And obviously, like I alluded to before, the monologue of the film has become uh, something of virility in the last X amount of years, especially with a lot of uh, political division. It's such a, a powerful, warm, optimistic, yet very realistic monologue about how the world really needs to be banding together as opposed to divided against one, one another. And to this day, the great dictator considered taboo at one point is seen as very bold and still relevant to this day. So I, I feel like it, when it comes to Chaplin's films, he did a lot of amazing stuff. And I would go with City Lights as his, as his magnum opus. Modern Times is, is brilliant. But in terms of something that really towed the line between kind of upsetting people, but also changing the game, The Great Dictator is part of that discussion. Yeah, and Chaplin always was a fairly political figure, even when he wasn't overtly expressing it in his films. So The Great Dictator is right in line. It's just more outspoken. Yeah, I, I just feel like a lot of people, and even today, a lot of people, when they're thinking of Jojo Rabbit or Life is Beautiful, you know, they'll bring up the great dictator and be like, you know, this type of thing shouldn't be really uh, made fun of or anything. And Chaplin himself later on would say, had he known the real monstrosities of the Third Reich and whatnot, he probably wouldn't have made this film. This was made before things got really bad with the creation of the Holocaust and, you know, the actual generation of camps and everything. This was, this is before that. This was a statement while Hitler was still on the rise. And and I feel like it's still a very important film to have because it um, it's speaking volumes from a very raw place um, and completely in an, uh, it, sorry, I can't even pronounce this, uh, uninhibited. And I feel like it's important. It's, it's not necessarily important to not take stuff seriously, but it's important to have very real conversations. Do I think Jojo Rabbit and Life is Beautiful do it quite as well? I 
don't know. I wouldn't say that. And I'm not speaking about quality. I'm talking about in terms of, uh, you know, their moral compasses. But the great dictator, I feel like, was daring enough to even start this type of a conversation where it's like, how far can we go with this? Because we need to talk about this. You're not listening. So let's do it via comedy. Let's do it via warmth because we need to talk about this. And context is important, especially when it's like he did it at a time before it got really bad. It's one of those things like, yeah, it was awful. But at the same time, it you like you said, it needed to be talked about. But doing anything about that era now, you have to be careful with because we know how bad it is. That's true. You know, when it comes to hindsight, and maybe a lot of people believe Tika Waititi and Roberto Benini might have this detachment from this sort of stuff where it's like, you don't get the severity of this because uh, these were made decades later and maybe you, you you were told stories or whatnot. It's really tough. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a gray area, I feel like, because I personally think Life is Beautiful and Jojo Rabbit are actually fine films like i don't have a personal problem with it, with it myself but i understand why they would upset a lot of people when was jojo rabbit written because the jojo rabbit's based on a book which i didn't realize until looking into it it is the book is bears very little resemblance to the finished film like uh the tone is completely different and there's it's very the serious there's like the bearish shell of the plot but most of it's quite different yeah it's uh, jojo rabbit's mostly a take a ytt passion project where it's like i got inspired by reading this book but it's like yeah zero relevancy it's like very minuscule but that's often considered why he did so well during the award season race because of not so much that jojo rabbit was a good screenplay but how much he created it into something new hence why he won the oscar nonetheless i'm guessing uh because I don't believe he has any children that are uh, filmmakers or in the industry. Uh, not that I know of, but uh, I'm guessing Take a YTT is not your pick, James. No. <laughs> so for my pick, when I speak this father's name, the child's going to be obvious. I decided to go with Robert Downey Sr. Oh, okay. So it could only be Maggie Smith. No, I'm kidding. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when you think Robert Downey Jr., you think of his career as a whole is primarily a commercial actor. You know, he got to start in the eighties, you know, often in affiliation with the Brat Pack, you know, all the actors that were in a lot of the eighties movies primarily helmed or, you know, made in collaboration with John Hughes. And then throughout the years, he's always kind of done commercial stuff with some critically acclaimed stuff. He actually played Chaplin in the movie Chaplin, which was a biopic yes. about him. So <laughs> another coincidence. Yeah, that's, that's totally a weird coincidence. <laughs> Did Ivan Reitman direct? <laughs> no, that was uh, I, I Richard Attenborough, unfortunately. <laughs> that would have been amazing. So, but, and, you know, and obviously he's Iron Man and will forever be known as Iron Man. But his father, interestingly enough, was a trailblazer in independent underground cinema, you know, entrenched in the medium that was very much counterculture and anti-establishment. And I decided to go with his film Putney Swope. Oh, I've always wanted to see that. Never got around to it. I literally watched it two days ago. <laughs> so this is a satirical comedy and how it plays out. It stars, you know, it's the main character who's is the title character, Putney Swope. He's the only black man on the executive board of an advertising firm. And when the chairman of the board suddenly drops dead, you know, kind of twist of events, he gets voted in as the new chairman of the board. And he announces to the board that he's not going to make any radical changes. He's not going to rock the boat. And then it, it cuts to him having an immediate another conversation with a room that's filled with replacements of all, 
you know, black people to make it, he said he wasn't going to change it, but, you know, change it to people who were more culturally relevant to him. And then he also does this thing where he decides that they're no longer accepting business from companies that produce alcohol, tobacco, or toy guns. Wow. Back then, that would be rather bold. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting. And it's just kind of showing how he goes about running his business, you know, all the ups and downs. It's also in black and white. Black and white, white satires back then just hit different than satire does now. It, it has very much the similar feel to Dr. Strangelove. And that it's, you know, it's almost like a caricature. It's not quite like, I wouldn't call it a parody. It's more, much a caricature of the times. I feel like it's one way to separate because so many uh, directors and audiences were getting so enamored with, you know, color films. So this was like a great disconnect where it's like now that you're familiar with this this is the unfamiliarity so this is a satirical world this isn't like our own but it is so you're going to feel a little familiar because black and white was you know obviously the film of choice of yesteryear and the only option for many years um so it's almost like that familiarity but you feel a little off yeah it's interesting we've all gone with satire I was just going to say that as well. Not like, planned, uh, by the way. For listeners at home, we, no, we, we don't plan this at all. <laughs> Not together. Yeah, we usually give only the barest amount of information about which movies we picked, if at all. Yeah, so we'll say, like, uh, my film came out in 2008, so that way we know, well, I chose, I don't know, Driving Miss Daisy, therefore it's not the same year, nothing to worry about. But yeah, that's uh, at least we didn't say, we didn't pick the same families because that would have been that would have been <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting watching this because I've been meaning to kind of watch his films and kind of go back into the history because I'm really into independent film, but it's like I've only gone back so far, and you know I've been trying to go back because you, you know I heard about people like Robert Downey Sr. or people like John Cassavetes. and it's really interesting to see what was going on in an independent scene at the level they were doing it before it really kind of took off over the years. And just the fact that how daring, like just counterculture art in general must have been really interesting for the time because watching this right now, it probably wouldn't have the same effect as back then. But when you see, when you know, you you hear stories about you know, these filmmakers and the beat generation authors and how, you know, it was unheard of the stuff they were making where it's commonplace now. I'm just thinking like, man, it's such a different time because this was, this was released in 1969. So it was right before the, it, you know, 1969, everybody knows all the stuff that was happening then. It was the murder of Sharon Tate. We had Woodstock. You have a film like this. It's just, yeah, it's just so fascinating to see what links people will go to express themselves. Also, to have a white writer and director write a main character who's black and have a primarily black cast. And to not be Norman Jewinson either. So it's like, that's also interesting. A uh, quick shout out because you brought up John Cassavetes, who I'm surprised you haven't checked out uh, more of, James. But uh, I just find it interesting that John Cassavetes, who's seen as like one of the, the founders of indie cinema as we know it. Speaking of families, you know, Nick Cassavetes ended up doing The Notebook, which feels very, very different compared to, you know, say, A Woman Under the Influence. But still interesting enough. Shall we go in the same order and uh, see what their uh, these descendants of these families uh, were up to by the time that, you know, we caught up with them? Yes. So um, for my pick for The Descendant, I had actually two choices with this one. I went with Jason because he's worked more in film than Catherine has. 
And so Jason Reitman is mainly known for what I would call dramedies. They're sort of very serious comedies. The most famous, of course, is Juno, for which he got an Academy Award nomination. And there's Thank You for Smoking, Young Adult. But I want to talk about Up in the Air, which yes! is probably my favorite and I think the most skilled of his films. I was kind of hoping you were saying that. Yeah, it came out in 2009, starring George Clooney, Vera Farmiga, and Anna Kendrick. And it's about a guy played by Clooney whose job is to fire people. So he flies all over the United States and just takes people into a little room and tells them their job is over and then deals with the fallout. And it's a very strange gig and it's a role that keeps him on the road all the time. So he's a rather lonely figure. He doesn't really connect to anything. And while he's going about his life, he encounters Anna Kendrick, who works at his company, and Vera Farmiga, who's kind of a connection romantic interest thing in a very strange way this is a really interesting movie i think it's rather underrated it sort of played out its oscar season and then disappeared i think it's just this film about how we all kind of come and go and we're all lonely at heart um as somebody who's had a lot of transition in my adult life i really really identify with it now more than i did at uh, 18 or however old i was when i saw it I, I do personally prefer Juno, but Juno is the obvious choice, and that's why I was so happy that he brought up Open Air, which is easily my second favorite film of his. And uh, as a testament of this, I've only ever seen it once, once, and I saw it in theaters. Um, I think it was like opening weekend, and I still remember vivid parts of it in my mind like when he's doing his check-in and it's like framed and shot the sequence so beautifully like he's so fluid with how he goes through like the metal detector and taking off his shoes because you know this is like second nature to him so it's like uh not only is it like a remarkable film you know and a very emotional one but um i feel like this is where uh where reitman really gets to show some like filmmaking finesse which you don't see a lot of in these types of of um of films and I, I really like the dichotomies created between him and Kendrick where Kendrick's kind of like the uh, the prodigy like you know the next line who's like supposed to kind of be learning from him and she kind of from what I remember like there's a big contrast between the work environment and her and she feels like a fish out of water in that respect or Vera Farmiga uh, finding chemistry in her own way and there's that disconnect as well um it's basically how when you're in a job, you feel one way, and then when you get fired, you're like casted into the world, feeling like there's like nothing, nowhere to like nowhere to go. You don't, you're not identifying with anything. However, even these souls like Clooney, Kedrick, Farmiga, still have this existential crisis going on, and it's it's this idea that the grass is always greener, where you know you're always yearning for something else. This job sucks. And then you lose it. It's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? It's, it's, I, yeah, you know, the idea of being up in the air, traveling, you know, and it's such a great motif, traveling, because it's like you go somewhere else, you suffer the same consequences. It's a very interesting film. And Clooney's very role is this person who drops into your life for five minutes and delivers some of the most significant news you'll ever get. So it, it's this strange film, but I think he really made something good out of it. Oh, yeah. And it's like, 
you know, the film deals with a lot of relationships. So how is this for a relationship? You see this guy, you don't know who he is. He's this tabula rasa of yourself. Like you're, you're yelling at this guy because you have no connection with him, but you're, you know, you're grieving over what just happened. You're, you're disgruntled over your job. So you're yelling at this guy because now he's the embodiment of your job, of your former boss, everything. It's, it's very interesting with how it deals with the different ways that, um, humans can interact with one another, whether romantically or for a matter of seconds, and it's strictly business. And all the characters are very well drawn and fully realized, and partially that's extremely good casting, but I just think it's a very nuanced screenplay. If I'm not mistaken, this is also a very early appearance from Zach Galifianakis, right? I don't remember, to be honest. I remember Melanie Linsky, and that's about it. Yeah, it's, it's, again, like I said, it's been since like 2009. I'll have to check this, uh, look this up. Out again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to check it out again. Period. Yeah, I just remember it was. Um, it left a very good impression on me. Between that and Michael Clayton two years earlier, um, yeah, Zach Galifianakis is in this. You're right. He and J.K. Simmons both played like one scene fired employees that got their lives ruined by George Clooney. Oh, and uh, toss and Tilda Swinton from uh, again Michael Clayton <laughs> on the list of people whose lives were destroyed by George Clooney characters. Um, nonetheless. James, do you have anything to say about Up in the Air, or are you indecisive like Up in the Air? I haven't seen it. I think the only film of his I've seen is Juno, and I'm one of the like rare minority who doesn't really care for Juno. Oh, no. Well, this is very different. Oh, yeah. I mean, I it's just one of those movies that I kind of like just didn't see when it came out. It's funny because there's a lot of films from that era because... So the early 2000s had a lot of those like mid-budget films that are like non-existent anymore, like all the romantic comedies and stuff. Once you get to the latter half of the of what's approaching to the end of the decade, you it's um what I like to call the time when indie film became a genre. So it was like all those big companies who started offshoots to produce like these low-budget indie films even though they were still major companies like Juno, Superbad, Charlie Bartlett, all those movies, like Napoleon Dynamite. And they all had like the same vibe and they all had similar marketing and almost they all almost had the same style of posters. Like they all ran on that vibe. So it was just like I I'm not like the biggest fan of any of those anymore, except Superbad. Superbad is still one that I love to this day. But yeah, I, I remember seeing ads for up in the air and I just never saw it. So I guess I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's definitely worth a look. For sure, for sure. Um Alrighty, so uh, hopping back to uh, the Chaplin family, uh, I'm going to have to give a, a, a wee bit of the family tree here. So uh, th- th- this family tree is a particularly interesting one. So, okay, so so Charlie um, ended up, you know, one of his many wives is uh, Una O'Neill, who is actually a descendant of the legendary Eugene O'Neill. So that's already fantastic. And their child is the very iconic and memorable Geraldine Chaplin, who's still with us today at the age of 77. However, that's not who I'm dealing with. There's a reason why I wanted to go with a very taboo or um, controversial, polarizing, yet iconic film of Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, because I feel like uh, Geraldine's daughter, named after Mother Una, who this is Una Chaplin that I'm talking about, is associated with one of the most shocking episodes in television history, which came out, I think, around 10 years ago at this point, in the season three episode of Game of Thrones, otherwise known as The Reigns of Castamere, which I can't say too much about if you haven't seen it, because it's some of the biggest spoilers of the entire series. 
but... Then again, if you've been alive on this planet in the past decade, you probably know the gist. Yeah, I don't want to say too much. So this is a 2013 episode, and um, this was on my mind a lot because I've been, I've been doing um, my top 100 episodes in television history, which uh, just dropped yesterday by the time that this episode is released. And the range of Castamere is one of them. So similarly to the works of Chaplin, uh, particularly The Great Dictator, I find... This is an episode of TV where Game of Thrones had its audience, but once this particular episode dropped, I think everyone heard about this and the events that happened within it. The only thing I can say is it's called uh, it's called the Red Wedding, and it involves uh, the Stark family, and that's all that I can say. It's all that I can say. Um, and I remember when I first watched Game of Thrones, I just couldn't believe that this person was linked to Charlie Chaplin, who's associated with the earliest, earliest outside of like, you know, the innovators and inventors of film, the earliest cases of film entertainment that many people would think of, including, you know, silent shorts and then eventually his feature films and the talkies, the rare talkies that he did. So uh, considering that this is well over a hundred years later in terms of this, uh, this family tree. And here we are where, uh, a great descendant of his is now in one of the most popular TV series of all time in an equally as groundbreaking, you know, in a different respect, you know, what Charlie Chaplin did with film. I feel like something like Game of Thrones is doing with television outside of its final two seasons are complete crap. Um, it's just interesting to see that the entertainment medium forever is evolving and to this day, we could still be wowed and taken aback. And I think there's something really remarkable in that. And that's why I wanted to do this particular family and this connection. Yeah. It's kind of amazing the scope that it covers over all this time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that makes me feel good, though, because we, uh, if we're doing a podcast about this, that means that we're devoting our lives and our sanities and our identities to, you know, visual mediums, uh, both film and TV, to, to varying extents, depending on who you're talking to. And it's just evidence that we're still not done. We're still not we're, we're still not done inventing. And in the eight years since this episode of Game of Thrones, I feel like we're still getting, like, groundbreaking television and brilliant films that are still, like, wowing us. So it, it feels good. It feels good to be a part of this this circuit. Nonetheless, uh, let's get into Iron Man or whatever film you have chosen for. I Actually, if you brought if you brought up Putney Swope, I have a feeling I know what Robert Downey Jr. film you're going to be doing. But which one are we doing, James? I decided to go with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Actually, that was that was one of the ones that I was thinking of. And a very oh, really? underrated film. Very <laughs> underrated film. <laughs> yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's a, a a dark comedy crime film written and directed by Shane Black. It's about Robert Downey Jr. plays his character is just a small time crook, you know, on the run from the police, stumbles into a casting call. He ends up making it through to a screen test, so he ends up at this party, and then he ends up meeting a private eye played by Val Kilmer and they end up, he ends up in this whole murder conspiracy that is revolved around a girl who lives in Los Angeles, who happens to be a childhood crush of his 
that he runs into. And yeah, it's really interesting because it takes on, it's a very tongue in cheek approach to like a lot of hard boiled novels and film noir. And one of the reasons I picked it was it was Robert Downey Jr. himself says it's his favorite role, but also it's uh, one of those ones that came out after he got completely clean from substances. So it's, you know, sober Robert Downey Jr. And just, you know, his comedic timing, his wit, his charm are all just flowing through this role he's playing. And he also says it's one of the reasons why Jon Favreau wanted him as Iron Man. So, yeah, I, I just thought it was, you know, I thought it might be fun to pick something that was kind of at the beginning of his resurgence. Because, you know, from the late 90s to the or the mid to late 90s to the early 2000s, he was plagued with like arrests and all these charges in and out of rehab. And I then think he was uninsurable for a while. Yeah, he he was <laughs> uninsurable for a while. He, he actually had to take um, he, he was always offered less money because of the fact that <laughs> they wanted, you know, that was their way of ensuring you get less money. We're keeping most of what we would have paid you if this wasn't going on. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I like, I like his story from like, obviously like the light at the end of the tunnel, because I mean, from the time all this stuff was going on, it, it go, actually goes back to his father. Like his father introduced him to marijuana at six years old. Oh, I had no idea. Because, you know, drugs drugs were always around film sets. It was like they did them together. And he says it was kind of like his father's way of connecting with him, which is really unfortunate. But, yeah, it's just really sad because it was like, I'm like, at least he had a relationship with him, but it's not really a great one. But, yeah, it, it, you know, it's just... Yeah, I, I'm very appreciative of this film. One, yeah, you're right. It is definitely underrated. It's also really interesting to see Val Kilmer in anything because it's like he almost went the opposite of Robert Downey Jr. Like he started going up and kind of like hit the stratosphere with Iron Man and Val Kilmer's kind of, he hasn't like disappeared, but he has kept a lower profile over the years. But yeah, as I was saying, I, I'm really appreciative of something because it would kind of like set up the dominoes to where he's at now. And just to see where he is is just always great to see because, you know, there are some people who aren't as fortunate and, they, you know, they still deal with the problems that they've had for years. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a very interesting film because I feel like uh, I feel like in some circles it's, it's heavily discussed, but in others it's uh, still quite underseen for somebody like myself. I recall when I was younger, because I was in like my undergrad when I saw it, so a couple of years after it came out, um, there were a lot of films that were philosophical or meta. And, you know, when you're scratching the surface of that type of stuff, anything could seem really deep. But I feel like, in hindsight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one that is actually as you know, interesting as I remember it. And I feel like part of it is because it's not taking itself too seriously, but at the same time, it's also trying to push itself to not just be vapid. And I feel like it's a nice juxtaposition between silly yet very interesting. And I feel like, um, I feel like, yeah, nowadays, especially with short attention spans, meme culture, kiss, kiss, bang, bang kind of ages really well. I think it's a fantastic film. It definitely holds up. I the pacing definitely makes that movie worth the watch. Yeah, and just all of the uh all of the uh you know, snarkiness and you know, every everybody's a bit savage towards one another and I think it's just so vicious and funny. It's funny, it's genuinely interesting. The mystery behind it's actually pretty well thought out. I think it's a very solid fun film. Like in the in the type of way that like a hot fuzz is. 
Yeah, that's actually, uh, you know, I, I would put it along with that. It's, you know, it, it's fun without trying too hard and it's not trying to be anything more than it has to be. Absolutely. Rachel, do you have any thoughts on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Never seen it. I, um, it's a bit of a fun watch. Once you've done the Oscar stuff and you've got some time, it's, it's a lot of fun. Sounds good. Yes. N- now we are going to say goodbye to these lovely families. Uh, before we do that, we're going to be doing our weekly random recommendations. And in case you're interested in listening to more of us or checking out more stuff, um, Rachel's going to give you our details. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the KCOT. And if you want to follow along with our cinematic smorgasbord this month, we are going to be doing Pie, Goodbye Children, and the Piano as our individual picks. And our collective will be Tokyo Fist. All of which I've watched already. <laughs> must be nice. Yeah, it must be nice indeed. Uh, I'm going to be procrastinating on that one. Um, all right, who wants to give their random recommendation first? I'll go back to the Reitman family because... Like I mentioned, Ivan Reitman actually has two kids who are famous in showbiz. And Jason, we've talked about Catherine is the creator of the television show Working Moms. So I'm going to break away and recommend a TV show this week. Working Moms airs in Canada on the CBC and has spread around to other places in the world. And it's a very funny look at motherhood, um, kind of modern urban Canadian life. And it's just a really enjoyable sitcom. So definitely watch that. For my money, Catherine is the funniest of the Reitmans, and I will stand by that. Wow, that is uh, some high praise and, uh, and, a, and a bold statement. I've never watched this series myself, but uh, I, I don't feel so bad about, you know, plugging a television show or episode now that you've done that. So thank you for making me feel not... Uh, not awkward. Uh, I'm, I, too, am going to go back to my uh, famous uh, famous family, but I'm actually going to go back to uh, one of the figures that I've already stated, Charlie Chaplin. I've got to give a shout-out to Limelight, which was one of his last masterpieces. It's, uh, it's also a talkie of his, and it's one that's very self-aware, where Chaplin himself was uh, commenting on how he's basically at the end of his rope when it comes to being an entertainer. And it's a very, it's, it's hilarious at times, but it's also a very sweet and, and heartbreaking film. And I feel like it's one that's really starting to get attention in recent memory. And it should. It's a fantastic film, and it's proof towards the end of his filmography that uh, Charlie Chaplin is forever one of the greatest filmmakers. So, Limelight. All right, I guess I'm up. I guess I'll go back to Robert Downey Jr. And uh, the film I'm going to pick, Andreas, I'm going to take a guess and say this is one of the ones you thought of when I mentioned them. Uh, I'm going to go with Tropic Thunder. That's exactly the one, because I thought you were going to go the satire route because of Putney's Hope. No, I thought about it, but I wanted to go Kiss Kiss Bang Bang just because I thought that had, you know, I think there were more reasons to pick that as far as Robert Downey Jr. himself. Yeah, Tropic Thunder, this is industry satire at its finest. And it's always fascinating when you get movies like this because it's, it's for one, you think, how does someone greenlit projects that exposes the very industry that it's being made in? And also, it doesn't mince words, and it's just, 
it, yeah, it's just fascinating because there's just, especially his character alone, you know, the, the method actor who gets pigment surgery to make his skin darker to play a black guy, which, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think he got unfair criticism for because, I mean, you know, a lot of people said it was blackface, but I don't consider it that because the whole point was to show, yes, this is wrong, but it was also to show like, hey, a lot of these method actors are kind of jerks for what they do. Also, I just cannot get over the fact that I didn't realize that the one dude was Tom Cruise that entire movie until the credits. <laughs> yeah, that was one of his best performances ever. He just disappeared. Now, that is some ideal casting. That is that is hilarious casting. And it's amazing because he's so unrecognizable at a time when he was being heavily scrutinized that people are like, whoa, well, I found him entertaining. So what are you supposed to say at that point, right? So, I mean, <laughs> Tom Cruise... As an actor, I, I've always loved Tom Cruise as an actor. So, you know, him and Tropic Thunder. We're supposed to be talking about Robert Downey Jr. Is he, he steals the movie. He steals it. <laughs> well, he got an Oscar nomination for a movie that would normally never have played for a minute at the Oscars. Oh, Robert Downey Jr. Yes, that's true as well. And I honestly feel like if The Dark Knight was not released that year, there's a very good chance Robert Downey Jr. could have actually won. And I sincerely believe that. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. That was the K-Cut, and if you're any of these famous families, uh, give us a shout-out. We, uh, we want to mind mingling and, uh, and getting to know all of y'all. Uh, you know, you're all lovely people, I'm sure. Um, and for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And uh, tune in next week. We've got something exciting planned. Uh, you'll have to find out what it is. Now we are going into the L-Cut. Cut.